Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 17th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, the Los Alamos National Laboratory's Ellie Ben-Naim discusses competitiveness in sports leagues and the optimal ways to make sure the best teams really win. And Montclair State University's Michael Jones talks about better ways to cut a cake. Shh, don't tell anybody, but all this material is really math. It's disguised as fun stuff like cake cutting and baseball schedules. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, mathematician Michael Jones on cake cutting. I called him at his office at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Professor Jones, thanks for talking to us today. Good talking to you. And uh, you've got this paper, Better Ways to Cut a Cake, which does not sound like your typical math paper. It isn't a typical math paper. It's uh, written with a couple colleagues, an economist and a political scientist, and then I'm the mathematician. Though we use cake as really a metaphor for dividing a heterogeneous divisible good, uh, an item that people may have uh, different preferences over the item. Well, let, let's talk about the, the traditional kind of cake-cutting situation where there are two people and you have the cake and what that methodology is and what it represents in the real world. Well, in the uh, I guess in the, the simplest case, it could represent uh, two kids who are, are dividing a, a, an actual cake or a candy bar or something like that, but it's also uh, cake in that type of scenario could represent uh, land that's being divided between two countries after uh, after some sort of dispute. Um, cake itself represents uh, being a heterogeneous divisible good. It's just something that more than one person could have uh, the rights to. The, the simplest situation, one person makes the cut and the other person gets to choose. Sure. I cut, you choose, uh, goes back Boy, even to, to the time of the Bible. Uh, but the problem with I cut, you choose, uh, although being very simple, is that the person who does the cutting is limited to just uh, 50% of the cake if that person cuts it, you know, cuts it in such a way that uh, he or she is indifferent between the two pieces. And that's the, the way that that person can guarantee getting 50% of the cake. Right. But there's... And then and, you're and sort that's... of at a disadvantage if you're the person doing the cutting. You'd rather be the chooser. This idea of eliminating being at that disadvantage is at the heart of uh, our paper, Better Ways to Cut a Cake. We were looking for a way so that uh, both players could get more than 50%. Uh, there's a number of properties that are uh, desirable in cake cutting, and one of them is that it's efficient, meaning that... Uh, there's no other allocation that is better for one of the players and at least as good as, uh, at least as good for the other person. Um, the key one in, in cake cutting is called envy freeness. In any type of division or any type of exchange, you don't want to end up feeling like you are taking advantage of and that you desire what the other person received and you have a certain amount of envy for their, their piece of cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, there's a third property, and the third property is arguably the lesser of the three, but it's the one that sort of motivated us because we know that we can get efficiency and envy freeness. Uh, I cut, you choose has those two properties. But the third property is what's called equitability. 
and equitability is is almost like a second order envy. Not only do I not want your peace, but I want both of us to have the, to have the same satisfaction for the pieces that we get. And this is key because before you said, and, and maybe listeners are thinking, this guy's a mathematician. He just said we can have more than a hundred percent. But this is the key to how you can have more than a hundred percent, right? That's right. That's that's exactly the case. It's because it's because the the players are the people who are dividing the up the uh, object, the cake, uh, as it is, um, they value the pieces differently. So, for example, if, if a cake consists of uh, half chocolate and half vanilla, and one person uh, likes chocolate a lot and can tolerate vanilla, and the other person is indifferent between the two, well, then a way to uh, have both people receiving, in their opinion, more than half of the cake is to give the person who values chocolate more, give them more chocolate. And as if they get uh, a lot of the chocolate, they're going to be happier. And you offset that by giving more of the total cake, uh, which would include all the vanilla, to the other person. And in that case, then both of the people could get more than what they perceive to be half of the cake. And a lot of your paper consists of the equations that talk about how to optimize that that uh, particular cake-cutting scenario. Right. Well, the, the important thing, um, and so I had mentioned this, this concept of equitability, is there's actually a, a way to cut the cake so that both people can uh, receive what they believe is the, the same amount of cake. So it satisfies this equitability. But here's the riddle. The riddle is that there's no procedure possible that can induce people to truthfully reveal their preferences of the cake so that we can cut the cake there. So although this point, this sort of mythical perfect cut exists for the two people, the problem is that there's no way for for me to to have the people communicate truthfully their preferences of the cake to cut the cake there. There's always a way for them to uniformly lie and do better. And so as someone who wants to design a procedure or implement a procedure, I want my procedure to induce the, the players to be honest about their preferences. And so this uh, this sort of perfect cut or mythical outcome in some sense doesn't pass that test. And what we show in the paper is we come up with uh, a different type of procedure that is strategy-proof and induces players to be truthful about revealing their preferences. Um, it doesn't return equitability, but... It does something, uh, it returns a different type of equitability, what we call proportional equitability. And in proportional equitability, the two players sort of are, are quibbling over a surplus. We guarantee that both of them will get 50% of the cake, and then what remains is a surplus. And proportional equitability uh, cuts the cake at a point that the players receive pieces in proportion to the value that they have for the surplus. The procedure makes it so that there's there's no way for one of the players uh, to, to lie and guarantee that they can do better. And that ends up being important. Really, um, in some sense, fair division, the area of, of mathematics, or um, if, you, if you think of fair division as, a, as an area of mathematics, um, Designing a procedure is what we would call um, creating a, a mechanism 
And so it becomes a mechanism design problem, and that's really a subset of game theory. Right. And we're right. trying to design a procedure so that players will tell the truth and let the procedure do what it's supposed to do. Right. And the last thing you want, if you're dividing, say, uh, a piece of land um, from an inheritance, is to feel like you were taking advantage of uh, by the other person that you're dividing it with. Right, and that gets to the real-world applications of this, where you, you actually do have a, a limited resource that you're dividing up among maybe more than two people. Yes, that's right. Your work is uh, kind of distantly related, is this right, to you know the work that a lot of people are, are maybe familiar with from the movie A Beautiful Mind or Prisoner's Dilemma, The Spanish Prisoner, that kind of thing. Uh, well, as I as I said before, mechanism design um, can be considered a uh, an area related to game theory. It sort of changes the it changes the story in game theory. Um, the structure of the game is given, and we're trying to then uh, determine equilibrium strategies. In mechanism design, we're coming up with the rules of the game uh, so that the equilibrium strategies. Uh, have nice properties, properties that, in this case, like what I was describing, induces the players to be honest about their preferences. Right. So now, is this the kind of thing that would actually find use in, in, for example, the United Nations sends in a team of arbitrators to, uh, to try to solve a dispute? Will, will this kind of, uh, analysis actually come into play? Um, this area, fair division, most certainly, there's, uh, there's different uh, different types of fair division dealing with either two or, or more players. Uh, and arbitration is, is an example of, uh, of fair division. And it is possible for both parties to feel like they got more than half of the deal. Yes. My, uh, colleague Steve Brams, who's one of the co-authors of the paper, uh, has a, a book called The Win-Win Solution. The Win-Win Solution, uh, is exact, is, is paying homage exactly to that. Two players in a negotiation can both do better than 50%. Dr. Jones, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. For more on the mathematics of cake cutting and a little on pie cutting, too, see my column called The Kindest Cut in the February issue of Scientific American. It's also available free at the website www.siam.com. Jones's paper appeared in the December issue of the Notices of the American Mathematical Society. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the world's tallest man was enlisted to reach deep into a couple of dolphins to pull plastic out of their stomachs. Story two, some snowflakes may actually be identical. Story three, a gluten-free pancake can fool the palate if it's made with rice and sweet potatoes. And story four, fossil remains of a giant saber-toothed cat that would have weighed in at about two and a half tons have been found in Wyoming. We'll be back with the answer, but first, does the underdog win more often in baseball than in hockey? And how many games does it take to ensure that the best team really finished first? Ellie Ben-Naim wondered about these questions and others, and as the group leader for complex systems analysis in the Theoretical Division and Center for Nonlinear Studies at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, Ellie Ben-Naim could actually answer those questions. To find out what he found out, I called him at his home in Los Alamos. 
Dr. Ben Naim, thanks for talking to us. Hi, Steve. How are you? Uh, you study the relative competitiveness of various sports, the, the big four American team sports as well as soccer. And, yep. and uh, can you briefly discuss what you found by studying that? Well, we asked a very simple question. Uh, in how many games uh, do we have an upset? Uh, where by upset we, we mean uh, a weak team, a team that we perceive to be a weak, beating a stronger team. And we found that this number is uh, surprisingly large in uh, many of the sports we looked at. In uh, baseball, it's about 44% over a century. We look at a few hundred thousand games. Next comes hockey. It's about 40%. And uh, tied for last are uh, basketball, NBA, and uh, uh, American football, the NFL, at about uh, 33% or something like that. So it ranges from about 44% where the uh, underdog wins in baseball down to 33% where the underdog wins in football or soccer. Yeah, it's quite a uh, quite a big spread. Now, this is interesting because, the, uh, for example, American football, has a salary cap that is supposed to guarantee parity throughout the league, whereas baseball doesn't, and yet you're saying that baseball is actually more competitive than football? Currently it is, but the numbers that I just quoted are over a, a century. Uh, if you look over the last decade, uh, American football has almost uh, narrowed the gap with baseball and soccer, which are in the top, and they have done it precisely the way you're suggesting, uh, salary cap and the draft, and uh, having a variable schedule where it's strong teams play a stronger schedule, weak teams play a weaker schedule. So um, the NFL actually, is, from our data, has done a tremendous job of improving the parity in its league. It's, it's rather astounding how uh, much improvement there's in the NFL in the past uh, 40 years since the merger with the AFL. I see. So by instituting the salary cap, you are, you are actually doing what they hoped that would do, and that's increase the parity. Precisely. Uh, interestingly, we did not find this effect in uh, the NBA, where the parity seems to be roughly constant over the past, say, 40 years. Despite a salary cap? Despite, I think, a tense by the league, yeah. yeah. Any, uh, any any explanation you can come up with for that? I, I, I couldn't make, the, make heads and tails of the basketball data. I mean, the, the NFL had a very clear trend, and baseball had a very slow trend of improvement over 100 years. But it was really hard uh, to understand the uh, NBA data. It was sort of going up and down without any particular pattern. Interesting. One of the one of the great things about sports for a statistician is that your your database is so huge. Indeed, and it's not only that; it's accurate. There's no doubt who won a game and who lost the game, and it's documented. And all the games are available. There are no errors, you know, unlike in biology or in other fields, sociology. So that's one of the things that attracted us to uh, look at sports is the, the availability of the data, the fact that it's free and accurate and it's trustable. This randomness is inherent in the sports, and that has really uh, very profound consequences. It tells us that uh, a winner of a champion of an entire league or a season or a tournament, they also can basically, there's, there's a lot of luck involved. And that's really a profound uh, effect that in, in sports. Well, that, that kind of takes us into... This new paper that you have that that's yet to be published, that's called "How to Choose a Champion." Now, there's a there's a lot of mathematics in the paper, but basically, uh, I've read the abstract, and and what you're talking about is the the inefficiency 
of a regular season schedule that involves all the teams for for the whole year. Is that right? Yeah. It tells you that, um, roughly speaking, in a league with uh, 16 teams, uh, if every team play, plays every other team once or twice, say they play a home and away series, um, such a format will really produce one of the top four teams of, of a good chance of uh, winning the championship. Of course, the best team probably is more likely to win it, but it's not a big surprise if the fourth team would win it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what such a format does is that the chances, say, of the 10th team out of 16 to win is really small, and the last team has practically no chance of uh, winning a championship. So what this is what we call a league format, and the mathematics tells us tells us something that we probably um, kind of anticipate is that uh, leagues are um, are um, very good in you know eliminating the bottom teams, but they're not so uh, efficient at picking the best team, the absolutely best team, at the end of the season. And we see that if you look at the 2005 baseball season, uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox were tied for first, and there are many other uh, cases where teams are trading places for first and second and third uh, up to the last game of the season. Let's say you have 10 teams in your league. Now, according to your paper, in order to establish uh, a champion that's actually the the best team yeah. with a high certainty, yep. you would have to play, if you have 10 teams in the league and each team is playing all the other teams the same number of times, you'd have to play the cube of the number of teams so the total number of games you'd have to play to ensure that the best team wins would be a thousand games in the regular season exactly every team would have to play every other team 10 times rather than once or twice and that would uh, guarantee that the best team wins that the best team is the champion and uh, that sort of surprised us because you know the natural assumption is yeah and and square every team plays rather once and and that usually produces the champion so uh um, what we celebrate is not necessarily be- the best team. I mean, that's also what makes sports interesting. Okay, now, but then you talk about the fact that if you have rounds in which you eliminate the lower-rated teams, you can pretty much ensure that your best team comes out at the end of the season as your league champion far more efficiently with fewer games. Yeah, you can pretty much just do this uh, with way, way less than a 1,000 games. And all you need is uh, a few games initially to sort of sort the teams out and figure out which team have no chance of winning in the end of the day. And you throw away most of the teams and keep a few that goes to a playoff. And we call that the championship round. And, and that reduces the game by uh, by a, a huge factor. So the, this paper is called How to Choose a Champion, yeah. and you've just submitted it to what journal? Physical Review E. Tell us how all this uh, relates to your your actual work at Los Alamos. So much of my work has to do with um, uh, studying uh, random processes, and um, I've, my traditional work has been on granular materials. I've been studying how random motion of grains of sand evolve and trying to model that. But I've recently gotten interested in trying to uh, understand social dynamics and how people interact and how um, um, social structure emerge, how do you have a middle class and an upper class. And we came up uh, with a colleague uh, with a model that, that tells you that competition actually plays a big role. You can think about in economics, um, companies compete and they compete for market share. And if one company gains, that necessarily means another company loses. And using a very simple model of competition that basically says that, you know, if two um, 
companies compete with, say, two-thirds of the time the stronger one wins and a third of the time the weaker one wins, you can really understand the emergence of, stratos, of um, social structures and uh, uh, hierarchies of companies or, or sports team or people. And the way we're drawing to this uh, sport is uh, really the model had lots of uh, numerical uh, quantitative prediction that we wanted to uh, verify or falsify and, and see whether this model has anything to do with the reality. And um, after thinking about it long and hard, we realized that sports is really the ideal laboratory for uh, for testing our predictions. And um, the more we looked at, into it, the more we realized that we can explain uh, competition in uh, tournaments and in leagues um, very, very well. We could match many uh, observed data, such standing, such what's the probability that, uh, you know, the 11-seeded uh, team in the NCAA tournament wins the whole thing. We looked at that as well. And it was pretty much a very simple model that explained um, many of the observed uh, results in sports competition in, in, in uh, championships and leagues and tournaments in a consistent way. Interesting stuff, Dr. Ben Naim. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. For more on the mathematics of competitiveness and scheduling, just Google Eli Ben Naim. That's E-L-I-B-E-N-N-A-I-M. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, tallest man tackles dolphin digestive detritus. Story two, two snowflakes might indeed be identical. Story three, pancakes from rice and sweet potatoes taste like the real deal. And story four, giant cat fossil found in Wyoming. Time's up. Story one is true. Back in December, the world's tallest man saved a couple of dolphins by reaching way down with his extra-long arms into the dolphins' stomachs and pulling out pieces of plastic they had accidentally ingested. This all happened in China, home of 7-foot-9-inch-tall Bao Zhejun. Story two is true. You probably can find identical snowflakes. The American Chemical Society reports that snowflake researcher John Nelson says that big snowflakes are indeed probably unique, but some smaller snowflakes, which would still have a simple crystal structure compared with the bigger ones, could probably be twins. Story three is true. Sweet potatoes and rice can make a good wheat-free pancake substitute for people with celiac issues who still want their stack of silver dollars. That's according to a study in the current issue of the Journal of Food Quality. Faux flapjacks need to be between 20 and 40 percent sweet potato flour to achieve the proper pancake hardness, cohesiveness, springiness, and chewiness. All of which means that story four about the 5,000-pound saber-toothed cat fossil is totally bogus. Because a new theoretical study has found that a terrestrial carnivorous mammal could probably never weigh more than about 2,200 pounds. They could never catch enough prey to support the energy requirements of their body, which would include the efforts involved in catching the prey they could never get enough of. For more on the size limits for carnivorous land mammals, listen to the January 16th edition of the daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. started baseball's famous streak that's got us all aglow. He's just a man and not a freak. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. 